Hi there, this is Martin Willis with Seaboard Appraisals and Estate Sales, and I hope you enjoy this free podcast. All right, I'm with Jim Craig, and we're here to talk about John Haley Bellamy. How are you doing, Jim? Doing great. Yourself, Martin? Great, great. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a great subject for me. I really enjoy uh, Bellamy's work. You're an author, and you wrote a book, and it's a similar name to the exhibition. Can you? <laughs> yep. Uh, the book is titled uh, American Eagle, uh, mm-hmm. The Bold Art and Brash Life of John Haley Bellamy. It's being published by the Portsmouth Marine Society. It is uh, the new definitive biography on John Haley Bellamy. Over 200 pages um, and uh, full color. Um, in the the latest, most cutting-edge research on the man, um, it uh, tips a lot of sacred cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things we thought we knew about Bellamy uh, that we now know are, isn't, aren't quite the case or things that were just dead wrong. Yeah. Um, so there's a, it's, it, it kind of reads almost like a detective novel, actually. <laughs> oh, well, that's great, because I know the book that was written about him uh, several years ago wasn't all that accurate from what I understand. Let's talk about who Bellamy was for the listener so they can understand this conversation. I think of the carved Bellamy eagles, the beautiful work. But uh, let's talk about John Haley Bellamy. I know he was born and raised and grew up and carved in Kittery Point, Maine, mm-hmm. and worldwide fame for his beautiful carvings. Yeah, well, uh, Bellamy's story begins on April 16th in the year 1836. He was born in Kittery Point, Maine, which is a tiny little hamlet that's part of Kittery, Maine. Yeah which is the southernmost town in all of, uh, of the state of Maine. Um, his childhood, fairly uh, typical for a kid growing up in that um, neck of the woods at the time. Uh, Kittery was a township that was um, very heavily centered on the sea. Um, lots of shipbuilding going on there, commercial shipbuilding, uh, lots of uh, commercial activity, shipping everything from uh, lumber and tin to more exotic goods um, being brought up from the West Indies and in the coastal trades. Um, but the and then big, the Navy Yard right around the corner. And that was where I was going next. Yes, of course, right. Right, a stone's yeah. throw from his house is the Portsmouth Navy Yard, which yep. is actually in Kittery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're still debating that over the years, oh, the, whether it's in Maine or... <laughs> I'm not getting involved in that one. <laughs> I've had locals on both sides. They yeah. have very strong opinions. Yeah. But when it comes to that Navy Yard, um, that was the prime uh, employer in town at yeah. the time. Um, this is where a lot of America's warships are being built and repaired. Those ships are, of course, made out of wood. So Bellamy's growing up in a town stuffed to the gills with wood carvers and woodworkers. Hmm. Uh, so it's no surprise, really, he would gravitate to wood carving. And that is where he would make his career. Did he have any influence, like a family influence at all? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Um, in fact, his father. Huh. Uh, his father was, um, is the Honorable Charles Garish Bellamy. Um, he was a dynamo in Maine politics, huh. served in a, a, a wide array of public offices. Um, the, the highlight of his career was when he came within one vote of gaining the Democratic nomination to run for the U.S. Senate wow. from uh-huh. Maine. So yep. very powerful, connected man. But the funny thing is, before he ever went into politics, Charles Garish Bellamy was an expert woodcarver. Hmm. Uh, he had studied um, civic uh, architecture and engineering down in Boston. Um, he There's many a house still standing in Kittery today that was actually built by him. John actually start carving with his father at one point? Um, it seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, Bellamy's growing up in a family full of woodcarvers. Not only oh. is his father a master woodcarver, but so are Bellamy's younger brothers, Charles Jr. and Elisha. Um, so all the oh. males in the family are woodcarving. Um, the, the father seems to have been the one who kindled the interest in them, who taught them the rudimentary basics. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, I should also mention his father was also the U.S. Inspector of Timber at the Portsmouth and Charlestown, Massachusetts Navy Yards. Wow. And he also yeah. ran the boat building shops in those two Navy Yards. So uh-huh. he's involved in naval architecture. Um, he's built, he built the first bridge that ever spanned the Piscataqua River. Um, Bellamy's dad knows his wood uh, wow. very well. And yeah. he's the, 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 the seed. He plants the seed that would eventually turn into this amazing wood carver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, for the listener out there that's just getting into this whole conversation here, what makes a Bellamy Eagle so special? <laughs> oh, where to begin? Uh, a Bellamy Eagle, first of all, um, I, I think it's just the, the pure aesthetics of the bird. Mm-hmm. Um, every artist before Bellamy who's trying to carve the American Eagle, they really focus in on this very ponderous detail. They try to capture every feather, every mm-hmm. you know wrinkle, uh, every crease of the talons. They're, they're trying for photographic realism. And in the process, it becomes so ponderous, so baroque, that these eagle carvings, even by greats like you know, Samuel McIntyre, um, they, they, they don't look like a bird. Bellamy streamlines the American eagle. Uh, he breaks it down to his most basic components. He's actually uh, a precursor to the modern art and abstract um, art that we would see coming in the next century. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, he's a pioneer. By streamlining the eagle down to its most basic attributes, by just having... It's only four pieces. A typical Bellamy eagle, it has a wing assembly, uh, mm-hmm. which is just one two-foot-wide slice of pine um, with um, a shield and some feathering. And then, of course, you have the head and neck assembly, which has this graceful swoop, usually pointing in an upward direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the beak is uh, either has a very sharp 90-degree angle. There are a few that have a more realistic beak, uh, more curved to it. And then um, you have a, a, a banner and a pole with a pike on the end. Um, yep. The banner, of course, has a motto in it. Most mm-hmm. commonly, don't give up the ship. Right. Um, when it comes to these eagles, uh, they're so streamlined that they're actually more expressive than anything that anyone had ever attempted before him. Hmm. So a Bellamy eagle, when you look at it, it just screams uh, the ebullience, um, uh, patriotism, the the joy of being an American. Hmm. There's also a little bit of fierceness in there as well. Hmm. Um, The thing that really resonates with me is there's enormous optimism in his birds. Like I said, the the head is, is almost always looking upward. Yep. Onward. That's right. You know, like the bird is in flight, like the bird is taking off in flight. The bird is looking to the future. Um, so by being so streamlined, you know, they're more expressive, and like I said, they're really a precursor to the abstract art forms that are going to emerge in the coming century. Yeah. Ever since I was a, a young kid in this business, the first time I saw a Bellamy eagle, I wanted one, mm-hmm. um, and I've had a couple over the years, but. The one I ha- I hate to admit this, but I have a, a copy <laughs> right now. But it's 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 pleasing, and the reason I have that is because I was in California for nine years, and I didn't want to be moving around a Bellamy Eagle out there, so I got a copy, and it's Smart still <laughs> it's still very nice, and it's way up on the wall, and you know I mean it looks good. Speaking of California, I just wanted to tell you this quick story because I think it's kind of fascinating. I was doing an appraisal clinic out there, mm-hmm. and there was about thirty or forty people in line. It was pretty busy. The woman that was running the lines out there, she came up to me and she said, we have a carved eagle that was in George Washington's home. You know, home. And I said, really? I said, um, I'm definitely interested in looking at that. You know, make sure that person comes in my line. So the person came up with this eagle and she unwraps it. And um, I said, well, I have 
good news and bad news for you. <laughs> and she said, well, I said, this was years after George Washington died. This is when this was carved. I said, the good news is it's a Bellamy eagle. And she goes, what's that? And I said, it's a real nice eagle. But, I, you know, you always hear stories mm-hmm. with uh, with these eagles. And if George Washington had everything in his house that people think he had, you know, you, you would be you able would to live in a warehouse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When was the major body of his work done? In what periods? Well, that's a tough question. Um, I, I guess you have to back up first. You have to realize that Bellamy is a carver of several different things. He, right. We, we think of him most as the carver of these beautiful eagle sculptures. Um, his career really begins in 1859 in earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually opens up a shop at 17 Daniel Street in Portsmouth. Mm. And um, from a newspaper article I was very fortunate to find, um, he's mainly doing ship carvings. Um, this is decorative woodwork for commercial ships that are being built in the Portsmouth area. At that like, time. are we talking like stern boards and things like that? Stern boards, uh, cat heads, mm-hmm. uh, and surprisingly, figureheads. This was yes. one of the real big I know that beautiful figurehead that was at the... It's uh, in the Mariner's Museum. Museum. Yes, yes. In Newport News. Yeah. Um, that's his most famous piece. That's magnum yes. opus. It's um, mm. widely considered to be one of the finest pieces of nautical wood carving in America and the world. And that wow. is, of course, the USS Lancaster Eagle figurehead. Mm-hmm. A little later in his, in his career, the funny thing is everyone always said that was the only figurehead Bellamy ever did. Ah. Philip Isaacson was, um, he was a, uh, the man who wrote the book on the American Eagle back in t- during the time of the Bicentennial. Isaacson was adamant about this. Hmm. Um, no, Bellamy actually uh, carved several figureheads. Uh, most of them, of course, are now lost to us, um, mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. a perishable art form. But that's what he's really doing in 1859. He's working for commercial shipbuilders um, down in Portsmouth. And then he moves to uh, Medford, Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. East Boston, Massachusetts. He's briefly working down there. Again, doing uh, ship carvings for the clippers and, and uh, packet ships that are being built there at the time. Purely decorative work. Yeah. Um, so that's one focus of his, of his career. Then you have his career as a carver for the United States Navy. And about what year was that? Um, he starts working for the U.S. Navy at the Portsmouth Navy Yard in 1860. And he is going to continue to work for the Navy on a, um, all the way up until around 1898-1900. Mm-hmm. Um, the last record of him being um, on the books for the U.S. Navy is 1898. The records are admittedly spotty. Um, in his obituaries, it, it states 1900 was the cutoff date. Mm-hmm. But again, he's doing uh, decorative wood carving for the Navy. One, the thing I just heard you say, which I think is a... A great phrase. It's a perishable art form. Mm-hmm. And definitely, you know, a lot of other things you, you consider like um, schoolgirl samplers, you know, needlework, textiles, all these things are biodegradable. And when it comes to things like anything to do with a, a ship or a boat, um, you're out there in the elements. And exactly. a lot of times, uh, you know, he did pilot house eagles too, I imagine, did he? Mm-hmm. Yes, that is. I never really hear too much about the them in particular. Because, again, these things easily get destroyed. They're baked yeah. by the sun. They're hit by the salt waves, the salt air. Right. Um, and yeah. they were never meant to be cherished. These were ornamental items. Now, you, you mentioned earlier figureheads. Did he actually do the female figureheads as well? Yes, he did. Uh-huh. Um, we find uh, in this article it mentions um, that he does the bust of a female, mm-hmm. an Indian, and an ox. 
Wow, an ox. An ox. <laughs> Can't imagine what ship that <laughs> yeah. went on. Must have been a barge. <laughs> uh, one could imagine. I mean, yeah. it, it, these could have, at the time in Portsmouth, they're building everything from clipper ships all the way down to gundalows, which are just these barges with sails on them that go up and down the Piscataqua River and do some coastal yeah. trade, too. So it could have ended up on anything. Uh, we don't know the dimensions, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, the the one thing that strikes me about Bellamy's carving, and always has, and it's going to be hard to explain, but it's a very, the very precise work of his carving and a very... They're very it's, crisp and bold cuts. There it is. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Let me say that over here. And look at enough of these darn sculptures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the shape of the eye itself is kind of like a torpedo, yes. if you will. It it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's deceptively complex. It looks very simple when you first mm-hmm. look at it. It just looks like, a, like the, the, the head of a bullet or a torpedo. Um, but then when you actually get in there, like you said, uh, the, the cut is, it's with unerring precision. It's very, yeah. and, and you don't see any hesitation in there. That's right. These things, are, he, he, he just goes in there and he just nails it on the first attempt. Yep. Um, it's, it, it, what you're seeing there is a man who has ample experience. So this is an expert woodcarver. In, in every way, manner, shape, or form, he is not afraid uh, that he's going to screw it up. Either. You know, i got to say, in today's world, there are a few people like that. And one of them is an old friend of mine, Artie Swanson. Yep, Artie Swanson. I am familiar with Artie very well. Yeah. Thank you. I haven't seen him for about 15 years, but uh, he does beautiful copies of... Artie is, is, a, is a debate that I seem to have stumbled upon as to who is the best Bellamy co- um, copyist out there. Uh-huh. Um, there are two, and I think Artie's a little better. But um, <laughs> uh, Artie, in my opinion, is is the best. Yeah, um, he's been doing them a long that. time. I remember for at least twenty five years, maybe mm-hmm. longer. Uh, he started back in the seventies, I think. Was it that long? Yeah. Wow. So I th- we're going back to like some forty odd years now. Um, Artie originally he was tasked with. Um, brushing up some of these pieces like people actually had remember it's a perishable art form yeah so a lot of people kept their bellamy eagles outdoors yes i think there's still one in rye um have you driven by the house in rye new hampshire i don't know about that i I, caught that i know there's one in um there's one in marblehead massachusetts of all places still still out uh, right above the front door yeah yeah. And uh, some of the big, massive ones were outside, too, in the elements. Yep. Uh, those seem to have been intentionally um, for the purposes of gracing department stores, music stores, grocers, um, parades, uh, or places along a parade route, um, such as um, um, there was one rather famous photograph of 202 Court Street in Portsmouth. It's an about eight-foot monster eagle perched on top of this archway over a uh, volunteer fire station. They're very rare today, though, because these things, after after their use was over, they might have ended up on the side of a barn. Right. Um, very few. Right. I've, I've only... I've only come across two um, in, in my research mm-hmm. um, that have survived into the modern times. Yep. Um, one is out at Chicago, and the other belongs to a private collector here in New England. Now, I had the opportunity to grow up in the general area of Kittery and Elliott, Maine, and that whole area, um, and being in the antique and auction business. And so I've had a lot of... I've had a lot of connections with Bellamy pieces over the years, and also George Wasson and mm-hmm. Spinney and those other carvers. Yep. Um, it's a little difficult sometimes to tell Wasson apart from Bellamy. I mean, Wasson was pretty good. Uh, well, 
Watson was um, one of Bellamy's best friends. He was yeah. part of that circle, that cabal of um, summer visitors who liked to hang out in Bellamy's workshop. Yeah. Uh, including Mark Twain, um, William Dean Howells, Winslow Homer. Uh, oh, the, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. these, these guys all came to the Kittery area to spend their, their summer vacations. And mm-hmm. uh, somehow, don't know how this happened, but Bellamy's workshop became the de facto, the, the place to hang out. It was like a, oh, wow. like a pseudo gentleman's club. So that was, uh, this is where they like to loll in chairs, smoke cigars, and talk about anything and everything. Yeah. And they also like to go um, yachting in Bellamy's yacht, which was this um, surf boat. Mm-hmm. from South America that you guys hands on and it was rather famous in local waters because it had this outrageous paint scheme on it. <laughs> um, so everyone knew Bellamy's boat when he was out there. Yeah. So, so he'd go careening around local waters with these guys, but Watson was introduced to his group uh, around 1881. Mm-hmm. Um, Watson moves to the area. Uh, William Dean Howells is Watson's next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. So Howells looks him up and down and says, hey, you know, you'll, you'll do. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be good for the crowd. <laughs> and um, he and Bellamy hit it off. Yeah. Um, they both have a similar nautical background, um, both growing up in shipbuilding communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, they're both artists. Watson yeah. is a painter. Mm-hmm. But it's from Bellamy that Watson learns the art of wood carving. Um, Watson, uh, there's an absolutely priceless piece it's a carving of an eagle by Wasson that he wrote on the back, first attempt. And he gives ah. the date in February of, of 81. And the darndest thing is, is that it's, it's, it's a dead ringer for a Bellamy. Yeah, <laughs> It's really? a good thing he signed first it. First one. Wow. His first one. Now, yeah. I've been, I think, uh, you know, we talked before the recording. I've been in Wasson's house. Mm-hmm. Um, his uh, great nephew owned it. Saw all kinds of stern boards in there, and I believe there was an eagle or two, but I can't remember for sure. Watson's paintings on the Bellamy carved frames or Watson carved frames. I've had a number of those, and they always sell for a lot of money, and they're absolutely beautiful. Um, what's the word on that as far as who did the carving of the frames? Uh, it all depends on which one you're holding in your hands. Um, it seems that originally Bellamy is carving the frames. And uh, I shouldn't call them a frame so much as a board. It's one solid yes, piece of wood. That's right. But it it looks the, like a frame. It looks it? like a frame because the center is Painted. flat, and that's yeah. what Wasson paints on. So at first, it looks like uh, Bellamy is doing the carving. Mm-hmm. But then remember, Wasson is learning from Bellamy. Yeah. So Wasson eventually starts carving his own, um, yeah. and have found examples of that of, of both, where it's a, a Bellamy carving with a Wasson painting. And then a Wasson carving with a Wasson painting. Yeah. Um, fun thing about those, they, they're mainly for tourists, it seems. Is uh, that right? Yeah, they were just... And they were absolutely beautiful. We, yeah. I had one of Whaleback Light, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and sure, like, they were coastal scenes usually. Yep. Usually yeah. it's a, you'll see a brigantine or a, a little tugboat or a schooner or something. Yeah. But they always have Whaleback Light or Fort McClary, one of the real... Yes obvious you know um landmarks of the area yeah. in the background the tourists will immediately recognize and gravitate to and they're the perfect size they're easily transported and explains why they're so darn they're all over the place i mean they really migrated um, pretty far across the country yeah oh yes so, yeah um i read george Watson's book did you ever get a chance to read that? Um, Sailing on the Penobscot? Yes. Okay, that's a classic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you read the part in it where he says that he was commissioned to do a, one painting and he got so frustrated that he jumped through the canvas? Yes. <laughs> and you know what? I had that painting. Did you not? He never jumped through it. <laughs> <laughs> so why did he make up that story then? I don't know. I don't know. And um, 
Uh, it was I had a steel-hulled warship, if I'm not mistaken. That's exactly right. He, he wasn't familiar with those forms, so it yep. didn't come out well. Yep. It was hanging right in a house in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Oh, and God. I had read the book, and then I went back and forth and back and forth, and I had advertised that and put it in my auction. And the people wanted crazy money for it and never sold it. It's still in the house somewhere in Portsmouth, as far as I know. Oh, geez. Yeah. But he never jumped through it. He never jumped through it. <laughs> <laughs> Why make up that story then? I, I, I imagine he was just totally frustrated with painting it, but he, he but it oh, survived. I'm sure. I mean, his, his background was he was all about wooden ships. He had been raised around the yeah. boatyards again of, of Medford, Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. spent some time up in Thomaston, I believe, too. So mm-hmm. he was always familiar with wooden vessels and their forms and lines so when those steel hulled warships started coming out this was newfangled territory for him yep so i can understand why you get uh, all upset about it well i think anyone that likes to do any type of artwork always kind of has a tough time with a commission if they're not used to doing that Mm -hmm. type of work when they have to do a work or have to you know let's talk a little bit about spinny Mm -hmm. now i know very little about i know he was later Yes, and I know very little about him. I did sell a door that he carved because he lived in the house, and it was sort of Bellamy-like carved, uh, mm-hmm. raised uh, work on this door. And his eagles sometimes do fairly well. Yep, um, Iva Spinney was uh, a native of the Portsmouth area. He had actually served in the United States Navy during the time of the Boxer Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And um, Spinney, he's there at the end of Bellamy's career. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the funny things, and then he continued to carve after Bellamy, of course, passed. When it comes to Spinney, he's a great example of those of several artists in the area, woodcarvers, that were cashing in on the popularity of the Bellamy Eagle. These guys were intentional, just like you have Gucci and Gucci knockoffs. <laughs> these guys were the Gucci knockoffs, the, the Bellamy knockoffs, if yeah. you will. Yeah. They really were, because Bellamy had so popularized that design mm-hmm. that... Uh, um, that these guys started to go ahead and they started to make their own either intentional copies of Bellamy. Or in the case of Spinney, why I really enjoy Spinney's work is he took it in different directions. I mean, he did make direct intentional copies that tried to mimic Bellamy. Mm-hmm. But he also took the theme of the eagle with the shield and he in the abstract properties and he would take it in new directions as well that um, Bellamy had never um, attempted or dreamt of. Mm. Um, it has caused some uh, how can you, some confusion over time because some folks think they have a Bellamy when, in fact, it's a Spinney. Um, yes. I, I would love to have a Spinney in my collection if I ever get the chance to. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with a Spinney. It's beautiful work. Absolutely right. beautiful. Right. Um, right. Now, were there other people in his day, or is basically Wasson and Spinney the only two that really— Oh, there are several. Oh, there are several, um, there but those John. are the two that are mostly well-known. Yeah, those, those are the most well-known. Um, there's a, a gentleman named John Pridham. I've never heard of him. Yeah, he only made about 30 or 40 uh-huh. uh, copies. Um, and you, generally, when it comes from the examples I've seen of his work, uh, John Pridham's eagles, they don't have that upward swoop. Mm-hmm. They're, just, they're, they're parallel to the uh, lines of the back of the eagle, of, of the, the two-foot-wide uh, wing assembly. Um, is um, Captain Adams and his son Cass Adams. Um, Captain Adams actually piloted the last gundalo on the Piscataqua River. Really? Um, wow. That was his, his big claim to fame. He was the last gundalo captain. Mm-hmm. But uh, Captain Adams also um, bought a Bellamy Eagle and used it as a template so he could make his own copies. Mm-hmm. And Cass would paint them afterwards. Mm. So they're, they're, they're quite close, too. Uh, they have fooled eyes in the past. People have been like, hmm. <laughs> Uh, the paint scheme, it, it's a different color palette, and there are certain um, 
the, the neck is too bulbous towards the bottom. That's uh, one of the dead giveaways on, yeah. on an Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have we have those fellows. Um, Walter Ketzler is another fellow. He came a little after Bellamy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a uh, soldier in the Prussian army during World War One, and when the war is over, comes over to Portsmouth area. Um, did a lot of great um, interior decorative painting, historically accurate treatments. I think he worked for Strawberry Bank, amongst other places. But he catches the Bellamy bug, and mm-hmm. so sometimes people show you a Ketzler eagle, and it's like, yep, that's nice. But And then to make it even worse, Ketzler or Ketzler's son had students. So um, you have a copy of a copy of the, of the original. So you get three generations almost of, of people making duplicates. So you have Ketzler's making copies of Bellamy Eagles, his son's making copies of his father's Eagles, and then his son's teaching people. So, You know, i, I got to tell you, my going. grandmother was in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and she went to some class years ago and carved a Bellamy-style eagle. It was probably Walter Ketzler or his son. <laughs> she didn't do a very good job. <laughs> Sorry, Walter was Sorry in, Grandma. <laughs> well, I'm sure she's looking you know, down on you, and yeah. she forgives you. <laughs> Um, It's not her fault because Walter wasn't that good either. (laughs) That's really funny. Again, these are the kind of things that can fool an untutored eye. Yes, Um, yeah. Going back to Bellamy, mm -hmm. let's just say the standard two-foot eagle that you see mostly Mm -hmm. out there. Has anyone ever tried to do uh, an approximate count of the body of work that he did? (laughs) Um, If they were to try to, it would be a fool's errand. Yes. Um, uh, one, we'll one say thing, in the thousands. Easily. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing f- folks need to realize when it comes to these eagles, and there's a lot of mythology about them, people will tell you um, that he mainly carved these for barter. Now, it's true. Yes. He did barter some of them. Mm-hmm. It is true. But that's not why he's carving them. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, these are just if, if he had a neighbor who was getting married. Uh, I need a wedding gift real quick. Oh, here you go. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe amongst friends and neighbors, he might use one for barter. Um, the truth of the matter is, uh, he, they were actually the cornerstone of a very successful business. Mm-hmm. Um, not- what about the rumors talking about barter? Yeah. <laughs> I remember being a little little kid and hearing the story that uh, John Bellamy carved eagles for a bottle of wine yeah, that's or for a booze. It, it's a Is it a myth? It's a complete myth. And so they kind of dirtied his name through this myth, uh, well, really. I mean, sort it, of. Yeah, it, it does. The, they paint him as more or less a, a drunk, you know? When it comes to Bellamy, um, you, you touch on something that really needs to be addressed. I'm glad you brought it up. Mm-hmm. Um, Bellamy and alcohol. I wish I had a nickel every time someone told me. That Bellamy was this hopeless drunk, this town lush, falling all over himself. Mm-hmm. The stories are outrageous. I mean, they, they paint him as this two-fisted brawler, this guy who's passed out drunk across the street from his house under a big oak tree. Um, and, of course, like you said, that he's going ahead and he's heading over to... Because at the time, Maine is a dry state. So the, the story was he would, whenever he was feeling a little thirsty shall we say, he would sit down at the bench, he'd bang out a bunch of eagles, tuck them under his arm, go across the river, and he'd go door-to-door at the grog shops of Portsmouth exchanging these eagles for alcohol. Uh, It's a great story. It's very entertaining. You can see why it's so long-lived. The reality is very different, though. Um, Bellamy did have an issue with alcohol. It goes back to 1857. He's a young man. He's courting a local kittery girl, he asks for her hand in marriage, and she rejects him. He takes this news very badly. 
Uh, he does turn to the bottle for solace. He becomes a regular haunt in the saloons, in the billiard halls, in the beer gardens of Portsmouth, where he was living and working at the time. Um, but he, get, he turns his life around mm-hmm. uh, with a little help from his father. Um, his father sends him to a place called the New Hampton Literary Institute. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a school that's still standing today. It was a college preparatory school. But it was also kind of a de facto um, reform school for the wealthy families of New England. Mm-hmm. If you had some money and your son or daughter had uh, gone a little wayward, you'd send them to New Hampton. It was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it still is in the middle of nowhere today. There's a gas station about a mile down the street, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd send them there. It was also a free will Baptist school. Hmm. So you, these kids can't get into trouble. They are in the middle of nowhere. There's no saloons, no billiard halls. They're getting bombarded with a good heavy dose of that old-time religion every minute of the day. Mm-hmm. And after two years there, he comes back to Portsmouth. And he is, uh, by all appearances, clean and sober. Mm-hmm. Um, he, is, he opens up his, his, his shop at Daniel Street. Then he's down in Boston. Then he's working for the Navy. And um, it seems that he's, he's clean, if you will. Well, and, you know, I mean, it, it would be hard to imagine how he could put out, put out such a body of work. Exactly. As beautiful as he did if he was under the influence of alcohol. Well, that was the first thing that made me look into that and say, this yeah. doesn't sound right. How does a mm-hmm. man produce so much with such um, beautiful grace and with those bold, crisp, clean strokes if he's supposed to be half in the bag all the time? Yeah. It seems that in his later years, when family members are dying off, friends are dying off or moving away, um, Bellamy does gravitate back towards alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two instances, two, of him having been arrested for public drunkenness in Portsmouth Mm -hmm. in in the 1880s. Um, But the funny thing is, only two. Many of his neighbors are getting arrested on a weekly, (laughs) monthly basis Mm -hmm. over in Portsmouth. It's only twice, so it's not as bad as people make it out to be. He was also a member of two very interesting organizations. Uh, The the, the first was a group called the the Knights of the Maccabees. Hmm. Um, The Knights of the Maccabees were a fraternal organization, and um, one of the stipulations for membership is that you could not manufacture nor could you partake of alcohol. So and he was a member of that. Yep. And he was a member of a group called the Washingtonian Inebriates. Oh, yes. I've heard of them. They're a precursor to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's right. Yeah. And so he's... um, So it seems... That was a real big movement at one time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about a time when... Um, well, the, there was a lot more alcohol in our beverages back then. Oh, absolutely. People don't realize that. And I, I sometimes think I should do a show about this because alcohol was huge in, in the 18th century in New England. Absolutely. I mean, it was like people would drink uh, rum in, in instead of water because they said the water was not good. So they had to drink alcohol and they'd start first thing in the morning. Oh, you know, they were building their houses and doing their crops and everything. Oh, they believed you couldn't raise a barn or, or, or yeah, build a work being... on a house without actually having some fortifying beverage. Yeah. Where, yeah. I, I think they did an estimate where the average American in the 19th century, if, if you were to take all the alcohol they're consuming and remove all the other stuff, just look at it's two gallons of pure undiluted alcohol you're putting in your body every year. Oh, wow. It's just yeah. some outrageous amount. They're like, kill yeah. a horse. <laughs> well, you know, um, I know we're totally off subject here, mm-hmm. but I did uh, I, I did an auction years ago, the Josiah Bartlett signer of the Declaration at, mm-hmm. um, in, in Kingston, New Hampshire. And I read through his journals, and I read also um, that he would buy a keg of rum 
it was like every other day. It seemed like he was buying it. I don't know if it was for neighbors or what, but that was a big thing. You know, alcohol was a big thing in the past. Absolutely. And so by the time you get into the 19th century, you start to see reform movements because there's the realization right. of how, how damaging this is being yeah. to, to society. Was all through Europe and everywhere, there mm-hmm. was all kinds of reform. I forget what they call that. that was oh, called the, uh, generally, they call it the temperance movement. Yeah, the temperance movement. I actually have a an early plate, transferware plate, um, that says sobriety and something like oh, that. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I know we're totally off subject and we'll get back to Bellamy, but it's sort of uh, related to well, the stories you hear over the years. It, it ties in. He's part of that whole environment, if you will, where yeah. the, the alcohol was much stronger than anything anyone's drinking today. I mean, yeah. this, this stuff could strip the paint right off your car. I mean, <laughs> this was heavy stuff. Yeah. And so it seems that throughout his life, he, he struggled. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a struggle he largely overcame. If he hadn't overcome it, he never. We wouldn't be talking about him today. He would just be this right. backwoods whittler um, who no one really remembered. Okay. Uh, but because he was able to go ahead and, and largely, um, you know, remain sober, if you will, and he was able to keep his focus, keep his bearing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why we're we're sitting here right now chatting about the man. Yep. Now, one thing I want to ask you real quickly is: a lot of times when you see you pick up a two foot Bellamy, you mm-hmm. turn it over. He countersunk the screw, and he put a little piece of paper glued over the hole. Mm-hmm. Do you know why he put the little piece of paper over the hole? Ah, if only those uh, little pieces of paper survived. They always, you always <laughs> yeah, see, you is, see the glue, the glue. mark. Yeah. Uh, it's probably um, various labels. Um, I, I did find one. It wasn't over that hole, but mm-hmm. it was for the Manhattan Storage and Warehouse Company. Yeah. Um, it gets back to the, the output. Mm-hmm. Um, Bellamy is producing these and filling orders for several hundred at a time. Wow. Yeah. And one, yeah. I found one uh, reference for an order for 500 that he filled, wow. another for 700, 250. Um, he's filling these out for, um, well, a lot of them are going right over the river in Portsmouth. And this, mm-hmm. gets, this ties into alcohol, too, strangely enough. <laughs> Um, one of his big, big patrons, one of his first investors when he starts his Eagle business, is a gentleman named Frank Jones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Frank Jones Brewery. Yep. Exactly. Frank Jones Brewery, the brew king of Portsmouth, yep. um, produced a number of ales and other items. Um, Frank Jones is using Bellamy's Eagles as uh, promotional giveaway gifts. Really? If you go into like a, your local bank today, you get the nice little calendar around Christmas time. Uh-huh. Jones would do that with Bellamy's Eagles. That's why you that? find ones that say Merry Christmas, yeah. you know, Happy New Year. Uh, so Jones is purchasing these from Bellamy. That's why you get this this connotation that, you know, oh, you know, Bellamy is giving them from Barter. It wasn't Bellamy. That's a story that comes along later after Bellamy's dead. It's to explain why so many bar rooms have Bellamy Eagles in them. How about that? How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I just found out there, 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 there is a bar room up in Portsmouth today that still has a Bellamy Eagle in it. Wow. Wow. I mentioned earlier before we started recording that my father had seen the workshop, mm-hmm. the tools and the and blank carved eagles that were sitting in a nail barrel. They were just all stuffed in there. Yep. They, were, they weren't carved. They were just roughed out. Have you ever seen any in that 
order where they were just roughed out and not carved? Strangely enough, I haven't. Um, I've come. There's been a lot of tantalizing leads. Yeah. Um, the the closest I've come is actually a series of heads by um, Captain Adams, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. The uh-huh. fellow from the Gundalow. Uh, which is great because you can see the progression of how you'd make a Bellamy eagle. Yeah. Um, I would love to find where, you, where your dad sent all the, <laughs> those eagles. On the Peabody Essex, I should also mention, they have his toolbox, and they do have two uh, heads in, uh, that, that aren't completed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just representational smattering, though. Um, yeah. it, as to why you'd have a whole bunch banged up, remember, he's making them you know, several hundred per order. Um, Bellamy's workshop, he actually referred to as, quote, a snug little factory. <laughs> yeah, it was very small, wasn't it? it? It was very small. It was an old uh, counting house for uh, Sir William Pepperell, who was a uh, merchant in the Kittery area. Mm. Um, the, the Bellamy and his family lived in uh, the Sir William Pepperell mansion, uh, which is still staying at a private home. It's a beautiful place. Gorgeous. Yes. You had yeah. the good fortune. Oh, of yes. Inside. I've been in yeah. many times. Yeah, oh, I knew some of that lived there. Yeah. Be- beautiful home. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so out in the back, it's now their guest cottage, but you have this beautiful uh, counting house, which was a, a dockside business office pretty much back in the 1700s, mm-hmm. 1800s. And so that's what Bellamy converted the, into his workshop, specifically the second floor facing towards the harbor. And um, you can still see traces that there were woodcarvers who used to be working in there. There's this gorgeous, gorgeous, tiny little mo- half model of a schooner hull hmm. that is actually carved into uh, one of the frames of the windows up there. Wow. And it, it's a schooner hull design dating from Bellamy's time. Ah. So you know that he's the one who put it up there. Wow, nice. Nice. It's just it's a beautiful little little spot. And that, that shop he's working there, he's not the only one working in there. Um, his, we find well, business letters uh, from Bellamy where he's, or I, I should say personal letters, where he's talking to his father and hmm. his brother Elisha and Charles. And he's promising them, hey, you know, if you need some work this winter, you can work with me. Hmm. And so they're in the workshop during times when their business is slack. I see. Go ahead and helping him bang these out. And yeah. it seems he even had some apprentices from the neighborhood working in there. Wow. Um, and as to what they're doing... Well, this explains why he has these patterns. These um, uh, you, you see a bunch of these over at the Farnsworth Museum up in Rockland, Maine. Um, if Bellamy's there just by himself, he doesn't need these patterns. But mm-hmm. when he has apprentices helping him out in times of high demand, they yeah. need the patterns. They, that's what your father probably saw in that. Uh, that's what you saw as well in that ra- that nail barrel. The roughed out versions were the ones that the apprentices cut. Uh-huh. They're using scroll saws. Mm-hmm. They're just doing the basic shape. And then Bellamy comes in, he does the fine, detailed work with his chisel, like the eye, the feathering, etc., the tongue. But the basic form of those pieces, especially the the poles and the the banners, I mean, that's being all cut out by the apprentices. Wow, wow. Uh, A listener always wants to know this. I I think it was Ron or who had the record for the highest... Selling. Yeah, that was Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie sold one of the most beautiful <laughs> eagles I've ever laid my eyes on. It's, uh, it's an eagle plaque. It's a little bigger than your usual yeah. um, Bellamy, but it's not one of those big monster ones, the 8, 10, 12 footers. Mm-hmm. Um, this sucker is about, I want to say, about a good four or five feet in width. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the banner says, God is our strength and refuge. Um, original paint job, and uh, I don't think the sun ever shined on this until 
came into Ronnie's hands. Is that going to be at the exhibition? Um, yes, it is. Okay, um, it, it's it's in the exhibition and the book. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so we're going to talk about both that yeah. uh, as we end this out. Sure. And what was the price of that? Do you remember? Uh, Six hundred sixty-six thousand dollars plus. Wow, isn't that amazing? That is totally amazing. I mean, I, I when I was young. In the 1970s and 80s, $500 was a Bellamy Eagle, mm-hmm. a two-footer. And, and then I remember when they hit 10000 and then a couple of them, there was a while there, they were going crazy, and now they kind of died down a little bit as far as values go. It, it seems that the cooling off came hand-in-hand hand with the economy. Yes, um, like so many parts of this business. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, honestly, if our economy ever truly improves, if we yeah. ever really get things going again, um, I think you will see in your lifetime a Bellamy Eagle price snatch a million. I'd like to think yeah. that. Yeah, that very same one that brought the 600000 could certainly go through and, and top a million. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. You even know. if it went today, it could because people are spending crazy money on the very best today. And, and, and that piece is the best. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You can't deny it. Yeah. All right. So thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a real pleasure for me because I've really love these eagles and and the whole story of bellamy and uh, it's been a lot of fun for me thank you well, martin the pleasure was all mine thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with uh, more episodes hopefully you'll find entertaining and informational this is martin willis from seaboardappraisals.com mm-hmm.